Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Good morning, Epiphany. This is Pastor Brian coming to you from his family doctor-mandated quarantine in the church office. Thank you all for your flexibility this week as Beth and Tom and I were given the order to hunker down on Thursday. I'll tell you, I tried hard to find a supply clergy person to fill in for me for Sunday, but turns out a lot of other clergy in the diocese needed to take this Sunday off, and so, well, here we are, back to church online. I want to thank all of you again who reached out with uh, get well wishes. Beth and I still have our lingering coughs, but we are otherwise in okay health. I wish uh, we could have met in person today, but frankly, it's nice to use my powerful audio software to edit out the occasional coughing fit that interrupted my recording. A special thanks to Lori and Denny, Tim and Terry and Regina for their help in putting together our Sunday service at a little bit of the last minute today. And per our usual online service routine, stay tuned after our time of morning prayer for our announcements. And so, let's begin our service together this morning with the Advent greeting. My brothers and sisters, surely the Lord Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Good morning, friends. Let us confess our sins before God and our neighbor. Almighty and most merciful Father, We have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your grace, there is no health in us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare all those who confess their faults. Restore all those who are penitent, according to your promises declared to all people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may now live a godly, righteous, and sober life. To the glory of your holy name. Amen. Grant to your faithful people, merciful Lord, pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hear, O shepherd of Israel, you that lead Joseph like a sheep. Show yourself also, you that sit upon the cherubim. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, stir up your strength and come to help us. Restore us again, O God. Show the light of your countenance, and we shall be whole. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people that pray? You feed them with the bread of tears and give them plenteous tears to drink. You have made us the derision of our neighbors, and our enemies laugh us to scorn. Restore us again, O God of hosts. Show the light of your countenance, and we shall be whole. Good morning, everyone. Today's lesson is from the Old Testament. 
and it's taken from Genesis 31, verses 36 through 54. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac, had not been by my side, surely now you have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kingsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Yeager Sabbatatha, but Jacob called it Gelid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Gelid and Mitzvah. For he said, The Lord watch between you and me, when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and this pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness. And I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me, to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. The word of the Lord. You know, sometimes I'm taken aback by how much of the Bible is uh, anti-family. I know I said anti-family, and I can hear you through the podcast. Wait a minute, Brian. What do you mean the Bible is anti-family? It seems pretty pro-family to me. You know, uh, think about the commandment to honor thy mother and father. That seems pretty pro-family. And what about the law of Moses? There's even a provision in there where a child can be stoned from dishonoring his parents in public. What about the parable of the prodigal son? 
where the vision of God's grace is that parents and their children will be unified in harmony after estrangement and separation. And I would say, yes, those are all passages in the Bible that highlight the importance of family relationships. But I want to note, I want to give you a couple of counter examples uh, that come from Jesus's ministry. What do we make of the fact that Jesus's dismissal of his mothers and brothers um, took place when he was trying to do teaching and preaching and ministry? Uh, you'll remember that uh, at one point, Jesus's mother and brothers come and try to pull Jesus away and distract him from the ministry at hand. And he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he points to the crowd around him and said, these are my mother and brothers. What do we make of the Jesus's uh, insistence in um, Matthew 10, his insistence that he came uh, to wield a sword and to turn families against each other? What do we make of St. Paul's insistence that celibacy is better than the married life at the end of the day? And then finally, what I want to propose to you is this. What do we do? What do we make of the fact that in our reading today, we have a son-in-law and two daughters take their 11 children and they flee from a father figure who has proven to be duplicitous and abusive and manipulative with their family. Um, what do we do with the fact that that not only happens, but God approves of it? Because that's the story, that's what's happening in our reading today in Genesis 31. In our reading today, we have a reckoning of sorts where a family agrees to part ways. And it's an agreement that has God's hand in it. And I hope today that some of you will be released from the pressure to make your family everything. And I hope some of you today will come to this text and be freed from the burden of your own past experience with a toxic family. I think those are two things this text is going to talk to us uh, about today. It's going to take perfect families and bring them down a notch. And then it's going to give us um, some wisdom about God's love in the midst of family dysfunction. And so that's what I want to talk about today. But I want to talk about Ruth first. This is from Genesis 31. And our reading today from Genesis is the climax of a 20-year-long pattern of abuse and manipulation by Jacob's father-in-law, Laban. Now, now Laban is the tribal patriarch um, in Haran. He's got a massive family. He's very wealthy. And Jacob, who we've been following now for a couple of weeks, you know, Abraham's grandson, Jacob is uh, working under him uh, to earn his daughter's uh, hand in marriage. So Jacob wants to marry uh, one of Laban's daughters. And you remember this story, right? You know the story already. Jacob wants to marry one of Laban's daughters, and he works for seven years to pay the bride price, to pay a dowry to marry uh, a daughter. So on the night of the wedding, he goes to consummate his marriage, but Laban pulls a fast one. Instead of consummating the marriage uh, with uh, the daughter he fell in love with, um, he consummated the marriage with the wrong daughter. No biggie, says Laban, smiling, I imagine, uh, coordinating the deception. No biggie. Just work another seven years and you can marry the daughter you actually fell in love with. So that's 14 years of difficult ancient Near East uh, shepherding, backbreaking, heat of the day labor that Laban was able to swindle out of Jacob. 
And now Jacob, as we read last week, is stuck in this strained polygamous marriage he didn't really want or ask for with two feuding brides who have brought their past of mutual resentment and jealousy into their marriage with them. But that's not the only time that Jacob has been manipulated by Laban. Before we get to our reading today, to give you a little more background, we see that Laban tried to swindle Jacob again. And what happened was this, is after marrying Rachel, the second daughter, and so he's worked 14 years uh, to secure two daughters' hands in marriage at this point. After doing that for 14 years, Jacob um, switches gears. He says, hey, I've got your daughters married. So now I need to work for a paycheck as opposed to sort of paying a bride price. You know, I'm gonna, if I'm going to keep working for you, Laban, then you got to pay me. And Jacob and Laban make an arrangement. They say, look, take this part of the big family flock and go and shepherd it. And at the end of um, the day, um, Laban says, I'll keep the white goats. I'll keep the, the ones that are kind of pure and, and good looking. And you can keep all the spotted and the speckled and the black sheep and, and all the ones that aren't that way. And so Jacob and Laban make an agreement that he will be paid, that Jacob will be paid in livestock. But when Jacob goes to take his herd, um, all of the entire herd um, that he is given, there's not a single striped or spotted or black sheep or anything in the middle of that herd. Um, that Laban had tricked Jacob uh, because really all of the striped sheep and everything were given to the other sons of Laban who then took them on a three days journey. And so what ends up happening is um, the odds that Jacob is going to be able to get any payment out of shepherding this herd are, are slim to none because of Laban's treachery. And so he's got Laban between a rock and a hard place because they have a business agreement but Laban is, is manipulating. He's being deceptive again uh, in terms of their agreement. Well, with God's grace and some creative animal husbandry, Jacob, over the course of about six years, is able to take the, the herd that he is given and transform it. And he's able to build this massive herd that's got a bunch of spotted and speckled uh, black uh, animals. And, and, and it's a herd that started off white, but at the end of six years, Jacob has um, shepherded this herd into something much bigger than it originally was, and one that's going to make him a handy profit, right? That he shepherds this herd into a massive financial investment that he will get to keep. And he doesn't just say, look at me, I'm good at shepherding. He says, this is God's work, um, that God allowed all of this to happen under his watchful eye, because uh, Jacob sees it as this divine recompense, as it were. It's divine um, judgment, balancing the scales for the fact that Laban took advantage of Jacob's desperation. And so Jacob, you'll remember, he shows up on Laban's doorstep and he's got, uh, he doesn't have a dime to his name. But God flipped Laban's latest deception on its head with the animals. And now Jacob has this massive flock, two wives, two female servants, 11 sons and one daughter. And so by ancient uh, standards here, he really has gone from rags to riches. Over the six-year period, as he's working with this particular herd, he, he makes a lot of money uh, by modern standards. He's gone from rags to riches, and he credits God for all of it. He says, God has been looking out for me because Laban, my father-in-law, is a dastardly guy, but God doesn't abide by that. And so God's looking out for me. 
Well, by the time uh, this herd gets to be so big that that Jacob and presumably God has worked through to make this happen, Laban's sons begin to grow resentful. And Laban does too, in fact, um, because they still see this herd as their own property. They had no real intention of giving it up. And they still view their sisters and their nieces and nephews and grandbabies, they still view this family as their own. They don't like Jacob. He's succeeding and he's thriving right under their noses, but they can't abide by that. And so um, he calls, Jacob calls a meeting together with his two wives. He says, look, Laban's been messing with my paycheck now for the past six years. He's changed it 10 times and he's meddled in our marriage and he's meddled in our relationships. And Jacob says, we can't stay here. We have to go. And in fact, Jacob says, you know, God came to me a dream and and said, it's time to go. And so he tells his two wives this and the wives come back together and they say, you know what? We're in agreement because uh, we have no chance of a dowry. We have no chance of an inheritance. We need to go. And so the three of them get together and they agree that it's time to flee. They agree that Laban can't be trusted. And so without saying goodbye, and this is remarkable, right? Um, Without saying goodbye, one day Jacob and his family out in the fields, they take all of this rightly earned livestock, all these spotted and speckled and black sheep and and all these goats and everything. He takes this massive herd and he takes his 11 boys and one daughter and he takes his wives and his servants and uh, he flees. He leaves Haran with the intent of going back towards a place um, where his family is staying in what we now call Israel. So Laban gets the news that his family has fled, that Jacob and his two daughters and his uh, 12 grandchildren have fled. And so what does he do? He jets after them. He catches them in their flight. He and his family, they book it over. And on the surface, they seem sad and hurt. They say things like, oh, why didn't you say goodbye? We would have thrown you a party. It would have been great to say goodbye. But in reality, it it really is an act. Because what they do, they say, somebody here has stolen our household idols and we need them back. And Jacob says, no, we haven't stolen any household idols. Don't be silly. And and, and Laban and Laban's sons are like, no, somebody stole them. And so they start to go through all of Jacob's luggage. They do a search. They search high. They search low. The only place they don't search is underneath um, one of Laban's daughters. And, um, you know, these, these little household idols they're talking about, they're small. Um, they're made from maybe silver or gold or bronze. And they're kind of good luck totems. But Laban and his family, they don't find them. Now, secretly, they are underneath uh, Rachel, you know, one of Jacob's wives. They're sitting underneath Rachel, and she's successfully hid them. That's a story for another time. But um, they can't find them. And so after after 20 years, right, so, so this is the buildup. After 20 years of pent-up anger and rage, of being uh, completely manipulated and, and, and taken advantage of by Laban, Jacob blows he lets his father-in-law have it. What does he say? I'll read the passage for you right now. What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods, and what have you found of all your household goods? Here, set it before my kinsmen and your kinsmen, that they may decide between us two. And Jacob goes on. He says, 
These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and you have not eaten the rams, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. Right? He's saying, I managed your livestock perfectly. But was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether it was stolen by day or by night. He's saying that if anything did go wrong in his management of, of the herds, if you know an animal came and, and, and tore up a, a, a sheep in the wilderness or something, he's saying, I paid for it out of my own pocket. There I was, by the day the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sheep fled from my eyes. He's saying, this job is really stinking hard. For 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If God, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you have, you would have sent me away empty handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Jacob is finally standing up to the abuse of his father-in-law. He fully articulates how he was nothing but honest when it came to this business dealings, but Laban has been deceitful, changing deals and renegotiating wages and setting up Jacob to fail. And so Jacob finally lets it all out. He says, I have been the perfect employee. I have been the perfect son-in-law, and this is how you treat me. How dare you? And for what it's worth, you know, Laban knows that Jacob is right. He knows the jig is up. He intuits, um, especially I would imagine because his two daughters are on Jacob's side in this, he figures out pretty quickly that, well, he's done. He has successfully driven away uh, Jacob. He's successfully driven away his family by being such a deceitful and dishonest guy. So he and Jacob, they make a public covenant. It's one of those famous ancient Near East covenants where the stones are piled up as a monument to the covenant and animals are sacrificed to, to sort of solemnity, to lend some solemnity to the terms of the covenant. Uh, and so they strike this bargain. And here's the bargain that they, they make. Part one, Jacob will not take any more wives other than the two daughters of Laban. Part two, he will not mistreat his two wives. And if anything happens to, uh, if Jacob does marry someone else, and if Jacob does mistreat his wives, then there will be divinely inspired consequences. God will strike him down. So that's, that's the first piece of what they're doing. They, Laban says, you must treat my daughters with respect and dignity. And then they say, here's the other part, they mark territory. They put up this big stone pillar and, and Jacob says, I will stay on my side and you will stay on yours and there will not be any crossing this line unless there is goodwill uh, and there's no violent and malicious thoughts happening. And so they set this system up where Laban and Jacob separate. They put up a stone, they put up boundaries which is a great psychological term, and in this case, a very biblical term. They put up boundaries and say, look, you take care of my wife, my daughters, says Laban, and if you don't, God will judge you. And on the other side of this, 
um, I will not bother you anymore. Just you have to promise you're not going to come back across this line and fight me one day and try to take revenge for everything I've done wrong from you. And that's basically the agreement that they've come up with. Um, that all together, that all together, they have come up with a family separation agreement, an emancipation agreement. And so at the end of this agreement, they slaughter some goats, they have a feast, there's some sacrifices involved, the covenant is complete. And so the text ends by Laban saying goodbye to his daughters and his grandchildren and blessing them all. And then the family parts ways. Now, you know, for me, as someone who had a family that I love dearly growing up, and for me as someone who was a, um, a family man and aspires to be a family man, I'm reading this passage and that last verse really, it breaks my heart. It probably shouldn't, given everything we've just been through uh, in the text, but it does. Uh, the last line says, Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned home. Right, if, if you read this whole chapter, you see that there are a lot of grievances against Laban. He is a deceptive guy. In fact, today in contemporary Passover seders um, that the Jewish community has, they list out Laban as a bad guy who tried to, um, to uproot uh, the planned promises of God and his actions. It's very interesting. And, and so on the one hand, it's like, Laban has to kiss his daughters and his grandchildren goodbye and never see them again, right? And, and we get the context. We understand why this is. And in some sense, we see that this is not a tragedy, but it's, it's sort of justice being meted out. Why do we think Laban is going to treat his family, his son-in-law, like garbage and then turn around and expect to continue to have a relationship with his daughters and his grandchildren? It doesn't work like that. And so this is the last time in the Bible that we're going to see Laban. Um, we will hear of him no more. And, and again, we may feel sad about that, but the figures in our story do not. In fact, the whole chapter of Genesis 31, it makes it clear that fleeing from Laban was God's idea. God wanted Jacob to leave his conniving father-in-law. God wanted this family to be separated. God wanted Jacob and his family to return to the family he had back in this Israel land that had been promised. It's very important for us to see that God is the author of this breakup. Um, see here how God recognizes a family relationship of severe dysfunction and orchestrates a work of division. So let me make two points in specific here, and then we'll close. And, and first is this. Um, as we come to this reading, something we can take away from it is that the grace of God, God's grace is at work because you are not denied or granted entry into the heavenly realms because of your family. Again, God does want you to be a part of a healthy, happy family. That was his heavenly intent for this world um, but the quality of your family and the sanity of your family and the sobriety of your family will not get you into heaven. And the, the, the quality and the sanity and the sobriety of your family will also not keep you out of heaven. It just isn't part of the determination of what is in and what is out. We believe as Christians that we are saved 
by grace alone, apart from our family. And that's a good thing to say out loud because, you know, it means a lot of different things. While, of course, we want to raise our kiddos to be Christians, and that's something the Bible asks us to do, we can be freed from the pressure of doing it perfectly. Imperfect parents are given grace. And churches, maybe not ours specifically, but churches are filled on Sunday mornings with parents who've spent all morning screaming and fighting their kids to get them fed and dressed and get them out the door in their cute little sweater vests and their frilly church dresses. And those car rides to the church are full of whining and frustration as the kiddos are going at it in the back seat, and mom and dad are fighting because they can't figure out how to get the kiddos to stop fighting. And then the moment the, the side door of the minivan opens, everyone puts on a happy face, and they pretend that their life is easy and that their struggles don't exist, and they're the perfect, happy little family. And... You know, that's a shame because if you've ever been a part of a church like that, that's going to judge you on how, you know, your kiddos are dressed and how your kiddos behave on a Sunday morning. Um, If that's you, you've most likely entered a space where they subconsciously believe that God only loves and God is only active in happy and well put together families. I mean, that's really what they believe if that's the, you know, the actions that they take. If you feel like you're being judged at your family at church, um, you know, family should be the place where, um, church should be the place where lots of crazy, you know, wild and crazy families come together. Um, and so, so if that's the case, if you're in a church that behaves like that, well, they secretly believe that God's sort of presence and affection and joy is only for people with perfect families. Um, we can also say that we are saved by grace apart from our family of origin. Um, you know, Christianity is not a function of, of pedigree as a result. Um, this is why you can roll your eyes when people say things like, you know, so-and-so is the great-grandson of this family pastor, or my family has been in this church for six generations and our family is engraved on a plaque attached to the baptismal font. You know, these things at the end of the day, they functionally, they, they don't matter. There are plenty of stories in the Bible about apples falling very far from the tree. And we have stories of well-regarded and godly prophets like Samuel, whose kids turn out to be like terrible human beings. And then we have these kids of wicked pagan kings in Israel who, you know, do child sacrifice and mistreat the poor. Like their kids come along and they take the reins of Israel and they bring, as the king, they bring spiritual reform in the country. And, you know, this is in the big book of the Bible. And so while our earthly pedigree may gain us some advantage or inheritance to make this life easier on this side of the Jordan, it is not the case for the promised land to come. That's just not how things go. And so that's the first note to mention, that your family of origin has zero to say in your final destination. We are saved by grace alone, not because of our family origin. And even though we know that, Uh, to speak about it and talk about it, it is also true that we forget it from time to time in these other practical ways. Now, the second note I want to close on uh, briefly is I want to end this morning specifically with a word for those of you listening um, who have a toxic family in your past. I'm here to tell you this morning that God has a word of freedom and release for you today. Um, When Jesus says some of his anti-family statements in the Gospels, like I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, His desire is not simply to create division between family members. He's not dismissing his mother and brothers because they are a distraction to his ministry. He's not dividing fathers and daughters and sons and mothers because he's just a mean guy. 
Jesus has a plan to create something new and different that the world has never seen up until that point. A family of people who have God as their father and Christ as their brother. You know, this is why the adoption metaphor is so prevalent in the New Testament. While we might have our own birth families, we have all independently been adopted into the family of God. And yes, the family of God is occasionally beset with its own challenges and dysfunctions. And yes, some of us are just fine in our own biological families. But what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus offers us a new family um, for anyone who has been abandoned and broken or abused or neglected by their original family. That's part of what the gospel offers us is adoption into a new family. Through Jesus's death and resurrection, our primary identity is not fundamentally rooted in our family tree or in our genetics or in our age or our relationships with our parents or our relationships with our children. Our fundamental identity, friends, is that we have been adopted as children of God, purchased with the blood of our loving brother Christ, and born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. And friends, we are growing into our new family patterns more day by day, leaving behind the dysfunctions and the earthly rhythms of our old families and taking on the rhythms of heaven that we learn from our Heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit, and the work of Christ. Jacob leaves his father-in-law today, and he is rescued by his heavenly father. But now, what comes next for Jacob is fascinating, because in a divine act of reconciliation, Jacob is going to return home, and he's going to make amends with the family he deceived two decades prior. He's becoming a reflection of his own father in heaven, who also reconciles with his wayward children, who also wants to see a divine family filled with people who are estranged, but now estranged no more. For the man whose biological father ignored him, and for the man whose father-in-law took advantage of him, let's keep an eye on Jacob to see how things end up changing for the better in this world for him as the work of his heavenly father moves forward. And let's not give up hope that God, our father, is looking out for us in the same way. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. This is Tim Landy. I'll be reading the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. Let us affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. Let's say it together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Danny Hove. Would you pray with me, please? The Collect for the Second Sunday of Advent. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, and learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. On our church prayer list, we remember Rich Wilson's mother, Carol, Rich and Jean Wilson's daughter, Rebecca, and family, Tim and Renee Chelstead, Beth Gerald's Aunt Janet, Billy Mackick and her son, Charles, Amy and Gabriel Staggs, Regina Butler's mother, Jeff Campbell, the family of Elmer Hemmerly, Lexi Coyne, and Bea Blastos in our prayers. Almighty God, we entrust all who are dear to us, especially those on our church prayer list, to your never-failing care and love for this life and the life to come, knowing that you are doing for them better things than we can desire or pray for. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A prayer for mission. Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you. For the honor of your name. Amen. Please take a moment to share your own personal prayers and thanksgivings, both silently or aloud, with your family. Almighty God, you have given us grace at this time with one accord to make our common supplications to you. And you have promised through your well-loved, beloved Son that when two or three are gathered together in his name, you will grant their request. Fulfill now, O Lord, our desires and petitions as may be best for us, granting us in this world knowledge of your truth and in the age to come life everlasting. Amen. Heavenly Father, grant these our prayers for Jesus Christ's sake, our only mediator and advocate, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Let's conclude our time together with this prayer of thanksgiving. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you've made. We bless you for our creation and for our preservation and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world 
by our Lord Jesus Christ, and for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth our praise to you, not only with our lips but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all ages. Amen. And friends, glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to him from generation to generation in the church and in Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Here are a few announcements for the good of the church as we conclude our time together today. First, I want to give a huge thank you to everyone who rang the bell with the Salvation Army yesterday on December the 5th. I am always impressed by how much good the Red Kettle campaign does in our community, um, providing a fund to help our neighbors in need afford heating oil and paying their utility bills in the colder months of the winter. I believe there are a number of individual slots still available. If you'd like to continue to help with future bell ringing endeavors with the Salvation Army, feel free to give Grace Carnes a call. A second announcement is a quick update on the Angel Tree toy distribution plans we have. Uh, we've pushed the date back for toy distribution this year because of a intended delivery of some holiday groceries that got pushed back. And so we will need volunteers for Saturday, December the 19th, instead of Saturday, December the 12th. In particular, we're looking for four to six people who are good at lifting and carrying things out to vehicles. And so let Terry Toscano know if you can help on that Saturday. Finally, a quick word about upcoming services and our Christmas plans. So even before the doctors quarantine Beth and Tom and I out in a, of an abundance of COVID caution, I was having conversations with the vestry regarding potential threats that would prevent us from gathering on Christmas Eve. It had seemed likely that our Christmas Eve plans could be derailed if on one of the Sundays before Christmas, either December the 13th or December the 20th, uh, we all had to quarantine as a church because someone had a positive test after they joined us for a Sunday worship service. And the result is that if we all as a church have to quarantine for up to 14 days, that would prevent us all from gathering for Christmas Eve. And so I asked our vestry about um, some options and opinions about what might we do to mitigate that risk. And one of the options that I asked them to consider was this. Should we shoot for a good Christmas Day service by intentionally having online church the two Sundays prior to Christmas Eve? And so I asked the vestry members that question, and their answers were varied. But there was a general consensus amongst the vestry that Christmas Eve was an important service, and it was worth making the effort to preserve our gathering on Thursday the 24th. And this conversation was being worked through, again, before the Gerald family had to go on lockdown this week. You'll remember, uh, if you were at the annual meeting, if you were there, that I had asked the church to be emotionally and spiritually prepared for changes in our schedule to come. I asked these two hypothetical questions. What happens if the whole church has to quarantine for two weeks? What happens if Pastor Brian gets quarantined the week before Christmas and isn't there to officiate. 
Those were the two hypothetical questions that I posed to the congregation. But I didn't think they'd have to be answered quite so quickly. Friends, you know this. Christmas is a big deal, especially this year during the coronavirus season when people have really been struggling with questions about God's love and how God would work in the world that has pandemics in it. And so after getting feedback from a number of church members, particularly on Vestry, uh, here's what we're going to do. We are going to move forward with a plan to do online church on the 13th and 20th of December. So the following two Sundays from this, uh, we will be online for church. And we're going to save our longest night service for another year. It seems that this would not, the timing isn't quite right for us to have that service this year. That will give us the best chance of having a Christmas Eve service that's worth celebrating with singing and Christmas carols and the like. Not only that, but starting on Thursday, uh, December the 10th, I will be going into a self-imposed two-week quarantine to make sure that I remain apart from the virus long enough to be able to officiate our Christmas Eve gathering in whatever form it takes. Don't worry if it's an emergency, you know, I will still come visit the hospital. I'll give you the hug if you need it. I'm still here to serve the church. But you know, um, let's just say I've got a lot of Christmas shopping to do before December the 10th. And if you don't see me around a whole lot, you'll understand why. And, and this really is disappointing news for many of us who, like our sermon talked about today, consider church their family. And trust me when I say that it's not my favorite decision either. It doesn't guarantee even that we'll be able to meet on the 24th of December, but I do think it is our best shot at making that happen. So to summarize it all, online services for the next two Sundays, Pastor Brian is laying low, no longest night service. And we'll have more Christmas Eve news as the forecast becomes clear. So don't hesitate to shoot me an email or give me a call if you have any questions or comments. Again, the more voices we have, uh, sharing into this discussion, the better off we're going to be. Uh, thanks again for your flexibility, and you all will remain in my prayers over the next few weeks as we prepare to celebrate the first arrival of our Savior. Have a great week, everyone. We'll catch up together again online next week. Blessings. Pennsylvania.